Well, good morning. Uh, and indeed, I do bring greetings from the brethren over in Powell. Uh, please be assured that we pray for you and your congregation every Sunday, as well as our brothers and sisters down in Warland at Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Uh, we've been uh, praying for God's blessing for you particularly here, that as we found ourselves praying for three long years, that God would bring the man of his choosing at the time of his choosing, and you find yourself in that same uh, position now as you're uh, seeking a man, and I understand have a man coming next week. So uh, hopefully the Lord is answering our prayers in that regard. Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 today. So if you would turn there and please give attention to the reading of God's Word. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's go and ask for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank You for this great gospel and the great salvation that You have wrought through it. And Lord, we pray now that as we come to this text, as we consider these truths as they've been laid before us, Lord, uh, that indeed Your Spirit would be working through this means of grace in all of our hearts, Lord, changing, transforming, and renewing us. Father, we pray that Your Spirit would illuminate our understanding of this text. Uh, Father, we pray that we would grow in our faith and that we would grow in grace through the preaching of this Word. Father, we pray that You would glorify Yourself through the preaching of Your Word. And so we ask now that you would attend upon this time that we have in your work, uh, in your word here, that you would indeed meet with us and that your spirit would indeed be at work in the hearts of the hearers. Father, we ask for your blessing upon the preaching of the word. We ask for your blessing upon the hearing of the word in Christ's name. Amen. So Christian, what is your hope? 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us, and to be ready to give that account to anyone who were to ask. So my question for you is this, how do you explain an intangible concept such as hope? Now, thankfully, there are succinct passages of Scripture that do convey gospel hope for us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is one of those, uh, a very familiar text that many of you would turn to to give that hope and answer that question where it was asked of you, and rightfully so. There's good reason for that because there is a good, concise summary here of gospel hope. In fact, this is probably the second most popular memory verse in all of Scripture right behind John three sixteen. right? However, Sometimes the familiarity of a verse can dull our senses to the greatness of the truth that it contains. For you see, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is really a summary of verses 1 through 7. And unfortunately, many times when Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is discussed, it's divorced from verse 10. And so what we end up with is a stunted and shallow understanding of what this passage teaches us regarding our great salvation. 
Therefore, it's good for us to revisit these familiar truths and to continue to come back to them so our hope can be built up through a reminder of what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, our text here is tied to Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, with the word, with the word and at the beginning of 2.1. And so we have to recognize that connection there. Because verse 18 begins, Paul's praying here for them, and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That's Paul's prayer for the church. That's what he wants God to do for us. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, he tells us what is the hope of our calling. And in that, uh, he puts on display the surpassing greatness of God's power to those who believe. Another one of his prayer requests in verse 19, he wants us to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's design here is to magnify the glory of God's grace to show uh, and by showing what God saved us from, God's motive in saving us, and God's end purpose in our great salvation. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at it under those three parts. If you see in your bulletin, if you you like outlines, there's an outline there for you. And we're going to be looking at the first part under verses 1 through 3, and we're going to call that dead men walking. And then in verses 4 through 9, we're going to look at God's motive for saving as loving God saving and then the end purpose of our great salvation in the last part in verse 10 of new creation working. So that's how we'll work our way through the passage. Now as we come to this first section on dead men walking, as we go through this, I want you to see as we do this that that God's saving us from three things here. He's saving us from death. He's saving us uh, from the kingdom of darkness. And he's saving us from his own wrath upon our sin. So as we come to to verse 1 here, it begins, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. We begin with our natural state by birth. This is who we were B.C., before Christ. We were dead in relation to God. We were not half dead. We were not mostly dead. We were completely dead absolutely dead spiritually in every way. We had no spiritual life. We had no spiritual ability whatsoever. And to understand this, really, you need to think about a dead corpse. A dead corpse is totally unaffected by the environment around it. I remember watching a movie once where this guy was at the funeral of his friend, and they're at the viewing, and he's standing there, and the body's in the casket. But he didn't think his friend was really dead. He thought he was faking his death. So he whips out this big pin, and he shoves it through the guy's hand. Well, obviously, if he wasn't dead, you would expect a reaction to that, that something in the environment, that pin stick, would affect him, and he would react. And that's the way we are before Christ. We're spiritually dead. We're insensible to the things of God. We can look at God's creation around us and not see that there's a creator. In fact, not only not see it, openly deny it. We we suppress the truth written upon our hearts in unrighteousness. And what verse 1 here is telling us, this spiritual deadness in us was caused by sin. And what I want you to notice here is how Paul says this. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what I want you to understand is, the apostle is not stuttering here. This isn't a useless repetition. We were dead in our sin. That's our original sin. But we are also dead in our trespasses. Those are our actual sins that we commit, separating us from God, and leaving us without hope. 
In fact, over here in chapter 2, verse 12, in speaking about our condition before Christ, how does Paul describe it? He says at that time, we were separate from Christ, we were apart from God, and we were without hope in the world. That is just simply who we are apart from Jesus Christ. This is our native-born condition in which we enter into this world and in which we remain absent God's intervention. Charles Spurgeon said, Our trespasses and sin are our tomb. By them we are dead, and through them we remain dead. Well, if that is our state by birth, when we come to verses 2 and 3, we see what our condition is as one of these walking dead. This sin we were born into, we continue to walk in that sin. And notice how he says it here, in accordance with the ways of this world. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We walked in accordance with the ways of the world. And what is in view here is this current evil age as influenced by Satan. Now in John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11, in each of those texts, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. And in our passage here, the word prince simply means ruler. And power of the air refers to the fallen world system in this present age in which there is a spirit or a disposition towards evil at work in the native sons of the first Adam. So verse 1 describes our condition before Christ. Verse 2 describes our way of life apart from God before Christ. This present evil age is the kingdom of darkness. And every one of us by birth is a native-born citizen of this kingdom under Satan's dominion and subject to his influence. In fact, I want you to notice how Paul handles that here in verse 2 and 3. At the beginning of verse 2, notice what he says when he's talking about being dead in trespasses and sins. He says, in which you formerly walked. And in verse 3, he says, among them we too all formerly lived. He's referring back to what our condition was before Christ. And what we need to see there is that we were all the same. We were all born into sin. As we look at this world out there around us that is still apart from Christ, we were all once like that. And here's what we need to understand. There is no difference between the Christian and the world, except that which is made by grace. Now in verse 3, he goes on to further describe this way of life we had before Christ as living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. It was a life that was driven driven by the immoral desires of our physical nature and bondage to sin, under the influence of this present evil age and Satan its ruler. But see, it was also being driven by our own selfish desires coming from our self-will. So here's what, here's what the situation was before Christ. We... In bondage to sin, the corrupt physical urges of the flesh, being driven by the corrupt desires of our will, were being encouraged and cheered on by an evil world system around us that now demands, all must affirm me in my sinful self-identity. That's the world we live in. That's what we were a part of before Christ. We live to gratify our corrupt nature, complying with and being subject to the wishes of our own depraved hearts. We live for ourselves to gratify ourselves. We were born into a state of native depravity due to our original sin, 
and this corrupt principle was our, our, our corrupt nature was our governing principle of life that continued to produce these ongoing acts of sin. And here's what we need to understand by this very graphic description Paul gives us in these first three verses of our condition before Christ. He is setting up a contrast. And what he's setting up is the contrast of our past state by nature and for the Christian with our present state by grace. We were children of wrath by birth. By birth, we were under the wrath and judgment of a holy God. But now, in Christ, we are children of adoption by grace. So this brings us now to our second point, and that is the means of this great salvation. Now, as we come to verse 4 here, every preacher that has ever preached this text has probably drawn attention to these two words at the beginning of verse 4, and rightly so. In fact, we could probably even go so far as to say if they don't, they're probably negligent in their preaching, okay? Because they represent a sharp uh, contrast. We come to verse 4 and it starts out, but God. Now think about those two words in context of everything Paul just described for us in the first three verses of our natural state, how we are dead, how we are corrupt, how we are defiled, how we are under the dominion of Satan, how we are in bondage of sin. And he comes to verse 4 and he starts with, but God. Because these words represent the divine intervention that transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of of the beloved son but God God intervened God stepped in and we see here his motive in verse 4 his means in doing this in verses 5 and 6 and his purpose in verse 7 so God's motive in saving sinners is his great love and this ties back to chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, because there it says, it was in love that God chose us in Christ and predestined us to adoption as sons in Christ according to the kind intention of His will. And brothers and sisters, here's what we need to see. Our salvation has absolutely nothing to do with any quality or merit in us. Our great salvation came from within God who chose to set His love upon us before we were born, before we did good or evil. And this love here is described as a great love. It simply means the greatest or maximum love possible. Now I want you to think about that for a minute in the context of saying that about God. God is infinite. God is love. And so His love is an infinite love. And the love that saves sinners is the greatest possible love the infinite God could pour forth. There is no greater way that God could show His love than what He does in our great salvation, sending His only begotten Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you ever want to be reminded that God loves you, simply look to the cross. Chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that divine love is an impulse of the divine will. Divine love flows out of the divine will. And verse 4 says of chapter 2 says that this maximum divine love is rich in mercy. And this is important because you see, Titus 3, 5 tells us that God saves according to His mercy. See, mercy 
is the outworking of love that prompts one to act to relieve suffering. And we see this in verse 5, that God loved us and was rich in mercy toward us even when we were dead in our transgressions. Again, let's think about what our state was before Christ. Dead Death had us locked up, captive to our sins, sealing off our senses and, and to, to God and to anything spiritual, and shutting off all of our faculties to God. We were not sensitive to His Word. We were not sensitive to His presence. We were totally closed off from him and there was nothing we could do about it but God had pity upon us and his grace has broken the captive soul out of this prison of sin and death and that comes through this free and liberal dispensing of mercy from the fountainhead of God's love that issued forth in saving grace but here's what we need to understand At what point did God do this in our lives? It came at the time that we were dead in sin and under the rule and dominion of Satan, walking in the corruption of our nature as his enemy. God's God's mercy came to us while we were really being the worst we could possibly be. We not only could not do anything for our salvation because we're dead and dead men can't do a thing, But even if we could have, we would not have done anything for our salvation as our entire life was being driven by the lusts of our flesh and the desires of our mind. We deserve God's wrath and judgment. That's what we deserve. But because God had set His love upon us according to the kind intention of His will, He showed mercy. And God's mercy did three things to save us. And I want you to take careful note of how it it describes it in the text. It says that God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. And God seated us with Christ. Now being made alive with Christ in the New Testament is almost always, and in this case is one of these uses, used for the communication of the life of which Christ is the author, eternal life. And here stands for deliverance from death and the imparting of this spiritual life. Our dead souls were regenerated and made alive. Life, spiritual life, was infused into us, and spiritual life now comes forth from the living soul united to Christ where we once were insensible to the things of God, sealed up in our, in our prison tomb of death and sin, now, by the work of God's Spirit, we feel the weight of our sin. We see the pending judgment that awaits us. We see how horrible is our sin. We feel the conviction of soul and how we are an offense to the holy God. And then we realize the total insufficiency of our own righteousness and our total inability to please God and escape His just wrath for our sin. And if the story ends there, it's at Ephesians 2.12 says, we are without hope. But praise be to God, it does not end there. Because it is also the work of God's Spirit to convict us of righteousness and judgment and the wrath to come. And when the Spirit does that work, we then also begin to see the beauty of the Savior. We begin to see the fullness and the suitableness of His grace to our hopeless and helpless situation as the only possible way to be saved. And now, rather than turning away from God... We now seek after the grace Christ offers in the gospel, having been made willing to believe, having been made willing to repent by this grace, having been made willing to seek God in prayer, having been made willing to take refuge in Christ. And the grace of Christ makes us alive in Him. 
It's the grace of Christ through the work of the Spirit that unites us to Him. And we now depend upon Him uh, for grace. And we desire to walk in Him. And we come to the end of verse 4 here, and I find it actually confusing that when Paul says, by grace you have been saved, it's a parathetical statement, not an exclamation point in the text. Now the second thing that he does for us in this salvation is, is that he raises us. As Christ was resurrected from the grave, so too we are raised to newness of life from our dead condition by our union with Christ. In fact, what does Romans 6, 1 through 4 tell us? His death was our death. His life is our life. His exaltation is our exaltation. John Calvin said, The resurrection and sitting in heaven, which are here mentioned, are not yet seen by mortal eyes. Yet, as if those blessings were presently in our possession, he states that we have received them and illustrates the change which has taken place in our condition when we were led from Adam to Christ. It is as if we had been brought from the deepest hell to heaven itself. And what is in view here uh, when, in verse 6 where he says, and he, and he seated us with him in the heavenlies. Uh, what is in view here is Christ's ascension into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over his kingdom that the Father has given him. Okay, when Christ ascended from the earth, he ascended into heaven. He was crowned king. He was given a kingdom. And he sat down at the right hand of God, the position from which he rules his kingdom. And here's what we need to understand. We are united with him in that. And by virtue of our union with him, we have been raised to heaven with him and are now seated with him in the heavenly places and will receive our full inheritance in heaven upon our glorification. And it is so sure that it is spoken of as if it has already happened. All the verbs in our text here are past tense. That represents for us that this is a completed action in the past with continuing effect in the present. And so what we need to understand is there is also another sense in which we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ right now. You see, it's by the new birth that we have entered into the kingdom of God. It's by the new birth of John 3 that, that we are regenerated, that we are saved, that we uh, enter into union with Christ, and that we enter into the kingdom of God. So Christian, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God right now. Okay? The kingdom of God is here right now. How did Jesus open his public preaching ministry in Mark 1.15? The kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. We are kingdom citizens now. Well, what does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is that realm in which God rules. And as citizens, we live in this realm in which God's rule over us is now loved, where before we hated His rule, now we love God's rule over us. Now, before, where we hated His law, we now love His law, and His law is obeyed. And this is in contrast to that kingdom of darkness which we have been saved out of. And in this sense, we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven under the rule and realm of Jesus Christ. We are under Christ's law. We are under Christ's protection and provision as our king. And we have title to all the privileges of adopted sons and heavenly citizens. And you say, well, okay, sounds like some good theology, but what does it really mean to me now? Well, here's what it means for you. Because of your status as a kingdom citizen, we are freed from the condemnation of the law. We are freed from the bondage of sin. We are freed from the tyranny of Satan. 
We are freed from the fear of judgment. We are reconciled to God. We are at peace with God in this life now and in the life to come. And all of this is in virtue of our union with Christ. It is in virtue of being united to Christ that this change has taken place and we now reign with Christ as we enjoy the blessings of kingdom citizenship in this life and the certainty of full title to all the blessings of kingdom citizenship in the life to come that is ours only in Christ. You see, it's because of what Christ has done for us that we have, in fact, been rescued from the deepest hell and delivered to heaven itself. Not yet bodily. We're still here in these bodies, right? Okay? But brothers and sisters, we are there now in spirit with our Lord with whom we are united and will be until the last day when we indeed are bodily gathered to Him in the new heaven and new earth. And it is so sure because it is rooted in the promises of God and the work of Jesus Christ, our eternal mediator who lives to intercede for us. It is so sure it is spoken of as if it has already happened. Now, brothers and sisters, if you're looking for hope, it doesn't get any better than that. Okay? And here's what we're going to see as we come to the last part of our message on, uh, on verse 10, is that when it comes to good works in the life of the Christian, we don't work for heaven. We don't, we don't work to, to attain favor with God. We don't work to attain a good standing with God. We don't, we don't work to maintain it either. It's not like God saved us and we're, like we're some kind of wind-up doll and he wound us up and let us go and say, okay, I gave it to you, now you've got to keep it by your good works. Get out there and get after it. Okay, that's not what this is about. We're not working for heaven. But brothers and sisters, here's what we need to understand. We are working from heaven right now as part of Christ's kingdom on earth under his rule, under his realm, and for his glory. And that brings us to verse 7, which is God's purpose in all of this. Recognize in verse 7, it opens with a purpose statement. In order that. He's telling us, why did God save us in this way? God was rich in mercy and saved us by grace to demonstrate the surpassing riches of His grace towards those who believe. That's what He says in verse 7. You recognize that's also what he prayed for over in chapter 1, verse 19. You see, God's purpose is to demonstrate in each succeeding generation of this gospel age the greatness of salvation in Christ through us. Okay, the means God is choosing to use to demonstrate the surpassing greatness of his salvation are his saved people. You see, he not only wants us to know the surpassing greatness of his power to those who believe, he wants the whole world to know. And the gospel age is here contrasted to the darkness of the world in which the light of the gospel entered in, revealing this exceeding abundance of God's powerful grace for the purpose of this complete and total salvation of sinners who believe in Jesus. This is the kindness of God that is the action and outworking of His mercy that flows from His great love. The greatest kindness ever shown was God giving His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, what? Should not perish, but have eternal life. And so now, after all of this, we finally come to these familiar verses in 8 and 9, right? Do you see what undergirds them? Do you see how we can, can memorize these, these two verses and repeat them and lose sight 
of all that God has done by His grace to save us. So verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. We are saved by grace alone, flowing out of God's great love alone, in union with Christ alone. We contribute no decision or act to affect this new creation in us. We can't make that happen. We receive this salvation as a free gift. We come empty-handed, receiving it from God as a free gift. And the means by which we receive this free gift from God is faith in Jesus Christ. Now these verses stand not only as a summary of what God has done to affect our great salvation. But they also stand as a gospel call for all sinners everywhere to respond by receiving this great salvation through faith. And since we are dead in sin, remember our, our condition before Christ? Dead, sealed off from God, completely insensible to the things of God? Well, how can I receive His gift in that condition? Well, we receive it in that condition because the faith and the blessings faith receives both come from God. Now, the basic thought of grace here is God freely giving. Now, we have our we have these succinct definitions we use to help us understand very broad, deep concepts. You know, and for grace, we define it as what? Unmerited favor. And it certainly is. Okay? But ask the question, what's favor? Well, God's favor is God giving us something. Granted, something we don't deserve, so it is unmerited, right? We acknowledge that. But the basic thought of grace is God freely giving. And in the case of our salvation, it is God freely giving His Son first to live a righteous life, and then second, with that righteous life, to pay for our sin, and then third, freely giving us this righteousness that Christ has earned on our behalf. And he does that so that we can be counted righteous before him. You see, this grace is the good news of the gospel that is the only way to be saved. And the only response to this gospel that is pleasing to God is to receive it by faith alone without adding any of our works to it. Grace is a gift that we receive through faith. Grace is completely sufficient to save us and we need nothing more. We do not need any more grace than what we receive by faith. In fact, we cannot get any more grace than what we receive by faith. Our assurance is based upon the complete sufficiency of Christ's work, and therefore it leaves no room for boasting in us, and that we contribute nothing to our salvation. Our salvation is based completely on the merit of what Jesus has done that we receive, how? Through faith alone. Now this faith is a personal believing and trusting in the person and work of Christ. Someone else can't believe for you. Okay? Children, your parents can't believe for you. You don't ride into heaven on the coattails of your parents. Okay, you have to deal with the gospel. The gospel comes to you as a responsible moral agent. The demands of the gospel come to you and they require an answer. And the only answer acceptable to God is to receive it by faith. So it is a personal faith. It is a personal believing and trusting in the person and work of Jesus. And here's what we need to understand. Saving faith is more than knowledge of the gospel. 
although that's required. Saving faith is more than believing that the gospel is true. That's also required. But we not only need to, we not only need to know the gospel and agree that the gospel message is true, we have to actually place our faith and trust in that gospel. It requires all three to be saving faith. We have to know, we have to agree and affirm, and we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He did earn all righteousness through His very own personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to every jot and tittle of God's law. We have to to know and affirm and believe that this very same Jesus did in fact die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and satisfy that divine wrath and judgment that was upon our sin. Not just sin in general, but my sin. And we have to believe that he did rise from the dead and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And although this this faith is personal, it's required of each and every sinner to be saved, although it's personal, it is not derived from within us. It's not our faith in the sense that it comes from us. Because you see, even this faith was given to us by God. Our faith is something apart from us. It doesn't originate from within us but it too is a gift to us from God. Sinners are dependent on God's gracious gift for their believing response to the gospel. But sinner, you must respond to the gospel by believing. And even the faith by which you believe is God's gift to you. And he goes on here in verse 9 to just underscore this by repeating, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And what we have here is the first phrase in verse 9 is a contrast to the first phrase of verse 8. Verse 8 is, for by grace you have been saved. The contrast, verse 9, not as a result of works. And this is, again, affirmed many places in Scripture. Romans 3.20, Galatians 2.16, Titus 3.5. And when he talks of not being saved by works here, we have to understand works in the broadest possible sense. Works of any kind, moral or religious, before or after conversion, done with or without faith, are not the moving cause, the procuring cause, the helping cause, or the condition of salvation. Man makes no contribution of any kind towards his salvation, not even the faith by which we receive God's grace, because the faith does not arise out of anything in us, but is also given to us by God as a free gift. Again, John Calvin said, Hence we see that the apostle leaves nothing to men in procuring salvation. In these three phrases, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, he states that righteousness comes to us from the mercy of God alone, is offered to us in Christ by the gospel, and is received by faith alone without the merit of works. My personal faith does not arise out of any act or deed done by myself. God's purpose in giving faith as a gift is so that I can't glory in my faith or on account of my faith. I can only glory in God's grace to me and thus give Him the glory for the gift of my faith and the gift of my salvation that is appropriated through faith. And brothers and sisters, isn't this exactly what we read in Isaiah this morning? What did did we read in Isaiah 47? What did God say? I will not give my glory to another. It all belongs to him. 
And this now brings us to verse 10, and really the place of works in the life of the Christian. And he says in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. In our salvation, there is a work of recreation taking place. In fact, what's the theological term for this change that takes place? It is regeneration. It's not the generation of spiritual life. It's the regeneration of it. We are recreated. We have been born of God as new creations. Ephesians 4.24 says we have been recreated in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And God's purpose in our recreation is that, what he's telling us here, his purpose is, is that we would do deeds, we would, do, we would have good works, we would do acts that are upright and honorable and acceptable to God, and that we would not only do them, but that we would grow in them and progress in them in both quality and quantity throughout the Christian life. Now let's remember what we've already learned about our great salvation. Okay? That it is a completed action in the past with continuing present effect for the purpose of demonstrating the surpassing greatness of God's power to those who believe. That explains for us the role of works in the Christian life. These good works are those that are done in faith, that we do in accordance with God's law, and for the purpose of glorifying God. And again, as we think about works, we have to think about works in the broadest possible sense. See, we have a tendency to think of good works in the Christian life that's got to be something uber-spiritual. You know, we've, we've got to die the death of a martyr. We've got to go be a missionary in the jungle somewhere. Uh, you know, you've got to, uh, you know, be the great evangelist that preaches to thousands and see them saved. And obviously, those are good works if they're done in faith, in accordance with the Word of God, and for the glory of God. Those are indeed good works. But brothers and sisters, here's what you need to understand. Every mundane aspect of your life is to be done in faith according to the Word of God and to His glory. Every aspect of your life, everything you do every day. When you go to work on Monday, that's to be to the glory of God. You need to approach your work in faith, asking Him for the grace to do that work well, whatever it is. You know, people have this notion that there's sacred work or spiritual work that's what pastors do and then there's this you know common work that the rest of us do that's a false dichotomy that scripture will not support everything you do christian is sacred to god when it's done in faith according to his word for his glory so whether you're doing the dishes tomorrow morning or cleaning the house or sitting at your desk at your job Those are all good works through which we put on display the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. That's what good works are. So we need to expand our definition of good works. And we need to look at everything we do in every part of our life every single day. But here's what we must understand. These good works do not bring acceptance with God. Our acceptance with God is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ and that alone. Our good works don't bring acceptance with God. Our good works don't improve our position with God. But neither can we dismiss them as not necessary. God is commanding it. 
And these good works are vital and indispensable consequences of our salvation that give evidence we have been raised to new life with Christ and proclaim to the world around you the surpassing greatness of God's power to those who believe. Your good works bring glory to God. We are recreated image bearers now. In our regeneration, we've been recreated as an image bearer of God. We have now been made fit to live a life that conforms to God's character as revealed to us in His holy law. We have been made fit to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. We have been transformed in our salvation. Remember, we're contrasting here who I was before Christ with who I am in Christ. Who I was before Christ, we go from walking in sin as a son of disobedience under the influence of Satan, the ruler of this world, to now in Christ, walking in good works as adopted sons of God that God predestined beforehand that we should be holy and blameless before Him to the praise of the glory of His grace. You see, brothers and sisters, this, all of this, is our great salvation. This is our hope as Christians. This is what it means to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, for you here who do not know Christ, I must exhort you by the command of God to hear this good news proclaimed to you and repent and believe in the gospel. That is the only response acceptable to God. But brothers and sisters, those of you here who are in Christ, the gospel's not just for, for sinners. The gospel isn't just for those who don't know Christ. Because likewise, by the command of our God, I must exhort all of us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling with which we have been called so that in this present evil age we might show the surpassing riches of God's grace and kindness towards all who believe in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, again, we give thanks to you for our great salvation. We give thanks to you for this great gospel. We give thanks to you for, for uh, the power that is at work through your word and by your spirit by which you save and redeem sinners and transform us, Lord, and rescue us out of this kingdom of darkness, out of this dire and hopeless situation we are born into, and instead bring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, uh, the kingdom of heaven, Lord. We thank you for such mercy. It is not deserved by us. It is only as the result of your love for us, and we give thanks for it. We pray, Lord, that you would, through this preaching of your word, build up your people in the most holy faith. And we pray, Father, by the preaching of this word, you would call sinners to repentance and to trust in Christ. Father, we ask this in his name. Amen.